you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Daniel chapter 8. That's where we'll be. And we've been going through the book of Daniel. If you just joined us for the first time in a while or you're new here with us, we like to make our way through books of the Bible so that God's Word can speak to us in all its fullness rather than us just kind of dictating what we talk about around here. And so we're in Daniel chapter 8. And if you remember, if you have been with us, you know, we said that the first six chapters of Daniel were these narrative stories where things were happening in Daniel's life and they were getting recorded for us. And so we learned a lot of lessons about how we live as people who are far from home, ultimately our home, if we're in Christ, if we're followers of Jesus, our home is with God in heaven. And so we learn and been talking about what does it look like to live as exiles. And so the first six chapters, if you remember, one of the points that I was trying to drive home was that in those first six chapters, Daniel is God's vehicle or vessel through whom he communicates to foreign powers. So he's got these kings that he serves, and he is essentially the conduit through whom God communicates. They have dreams and visions, and they call on Daniel, and Daniel says, well, here's what God is saying to you. So in the first six chapters, one of the things we realize is that God is something he's wanting to say to a world that he wants to redeem, that he wants to know and be in relationship with. And he's doing that. And then there's this turn now in the middle of the book, in chapter 7 through chapter 12, so the last half of the book, where Daniel is now receiving visions directly from God. Uh, and so they can be a little confusing, and we talked about trying to make those as plain as we possibly can. And we looked at chapter 8 last week, we're going to look at it again this week. But the thing I want to remind you is that what we're really getting in these last couple chapters is almost like a view into Daniel's prayer life or Daniel's conversation with God. In Daniel chapter 9, which we'll talk about next week, we see one of the best models for prayer in all of Scripture. We see how Daniel talks back to God. In this week, Daniel chapter 8, we're really getting how God speaks to Daniel. And if you can imagine, if you have been a person who over the years has cultivated a prayer life where you've made regular, regularly a part of your life is to get alone, get away, and talk to God, be in conversation with God, um, you know how intimate and how important those moments become to you, how personal they become, because God is a God who's able to communicate with us personally, specifically, and my prayer life probably looks a little different than your prayer life, because God enters into those moments with us and speaks to us and teaches us and instructs us and sometimes convicts us when we need to be convicted and comforts us when we need to be comforted, and he's so personal and specific in that way. If, if you haven't taken the opportunity uh, that God gives you to come before him in prayer, I would just encourage you to begin to exercise that muscle, begin to develop it, because uh, what you will find is those intimate moments with God in prayer, will, you'll treasure them more than any other moments in your life. You will treasure those moments before God. Um, right before I got up here in the first service, one of our pastors reminded me of a statement by uh, an old saint named John Owen that said, said, who a man is, and who a person is really, who a person is when they are alone with God in prayer is who they truly are. No more and no less. That was a very telling thing. Um, so let me encourage you to enter into those moments of prayer. Just begin to take advantage of that if you haven't. God says you can come before his throne and speak directly to him. I don't know if that strikes you as profound, but it should. That the God of all the universe who created all things invites you to come and have a personal conversation with him. That's unique. Most religions don't teach that. Christianity teaches it and um, encourages it. Now... Here's why I mention that, because in these chapters now, chapter 7 through 12, what we're really getting is Daniel's receiving these words from God, and then he's talking back to God in chapter 9, and we're invited into that very um, intimate moment to see what that's like. And so it's in the communication 
that God is giving with Daniel that we draw some conclusions about who God is and what he asks of us when we find ourselves in similar circumstances. Now, if you remember last week when we started in chapter 8, we read through it. We're not going to read the whole chapter today. We, we looked at the whole chapter last week. I want to look at some specific things. Because last week what we did is we saw that basically, by, by way of summary, Daniel had a vision and that vision is recorded in chapter 8. It's the vision of a ram and a goat. And they represent two world powers that were going to come hundreds of years after Daniel lived. Now, so it's past tense to us, but future tense to Daniel. Daniel has a vision of a ram and a goat. The ram comes first and the goat overpowers the ram. They represent these two kingdoms that will essentially come into power in the world. The vision centered around one specific ruler that would come from the second kingdom. The one kingdom overthrows the first kingdom. And that specific ruler really becomes, in the chapter, the epitome of all that is evil. I mean, he just represents evil to a T. And so last week what we did is we looked at this chapter. We identified, well, what is the nature of evil? And our hope in doing that was to understand that by knowing what evil is like, by seeing the marks of what evil does and and how it acts, we might uh, better encounter it when we do. That we might... Um, engage when we encounter evil authority and evil in our world in a way that is, um, for lack of a better way to put it, graceful, right, rather than clumsy. And so these are the six things that we looked at last week, again, just by way of review. Number one, we saw that evil loves power, probably above all other things. We saw that evil produces more evil so that we can know it by its fruit. And I think that's very important because sometimes we forget that um, you can identify someone by what they produce, And so often we might think that someone has perpetrated evil and evil and evil and that they would come along and sort of make some promises to us about, I'm going to change my ways, I'm going to do something good, particularly people in power and authority. And then we somehow get deceived by that and believe that what they have produced is not what they will produce, right? That might be particularly telling in an election cycle, right? What you have produced is what you will produce. The The third thing we learn is that evil is connected to a spiritual power source. And that's going to come into play again today. And what we really took from that was that this evil ruler, what we're told is that they're empowered by, by Satan, really, by the devil. Um, that there is a demonic force and empowerment behind this earthly ruler. And we were reminded that when we encounter these sorts of situations, we're not just dealing with what we see, we're dealing with things in unseen realms. You know, George actually referenced it when he was leading us in worship. And he was saying that we join the song of heaven. Do you guys... You caught that when he said that, right? And he referenced, which if you're new to the Bible, it it may have made no sense to you. He referenced uh, the throne of God and four living creatures and elders around the throne and the saints around the throne. That's an image from the book of Revelation where we're told that that, that's what goes on. We don't see it physically with our eyes. That's what goes on all the time in heaven. That God sits on his throne and is surrounded by creatures that defy description who he has created for his own pleasure and exist in heaven just around him and, and worship him and delight him and declare holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. That's a spiritual reality that we don't see with our physical eyes, but it's taking place even right now as we speak. You, you guys know that? And so learning to see that evil has a power source is really no different than learning to see that there is a spiritual realm that's, that's happening all around us all the time very real and learning how to discern what's taking place in those spiritual realms and how to respond to it um, and how it manifests itself in our world in ways that we see. Fourth thing we learn is that evil loves to destroy and not cultivate. Evil loves to destroy because God delights to cultivate and create human flourishing. The enemy loves to destroy that. Evil hates God and God's people. 
Evil hates God and God's people. And then lastly, evil is cunning and deceitful. Those are the six things we identified about evil last week. And what I'd like to do this week is take us back into the same chapter to identify that there's at least two things that God says, little nuggets, if you will, uh, that he speaks in the midst of this vision. And then two ways that Daniel responds to what God reveals that I think teach us what God expects from us when we find ourselves in situations like this one where evil authority is pervasive or where it's gaining traction. And God is saying, this is how I want you to live. Now, keep in mind, there's a lot more that the scriptures have to say about these kinds of moments. We're just going to stick into Daniel 8 and see what it has to say. This is not the um, exhaustive list of things that God would say to his people about how to live in the midst of evil authority. But let's look beginning in verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We'll put it up on the screen. And as always, uh, we have Bibles out in the lobby. We'd love to give you one if you don't have a Bible of your own. We just love to get God's Word into people's hands. So feel free to take advantage of that if you don't have one. But look with me at verse 12 now. Actually, let's begin in verse 11 to get a little context. Speaking about this little horn, this, this ruler, this wicked ruler, he says, It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. Okay, so right there what he's saying is, uh, he's foretelling a day that would come when in the nation of Israel, uh, the ability to worship God in the temple as he had prescribed in, in the law that the people of Israel should, that that eventually would be done away with. When this ruler comes into power, he's saying, he's going to overthrow your ability to worship me as I've commanded you to worship me. Again, keep in mind, Daniel is, is receiving this vision and communicating it Somewhere around 550 B.C., this event is going to occur in 167 B.C. So hundreds of years in advance of this occurring, he's declaring that it's going to occur. And then he says in verse 12, if I can find my place, there we go. In verse 12, and a host will be given over to it, that's just talking about God's people, will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Now, what, what I want you to key in on there is that word transgression. That's a very churchy word. I recognize that. Um, another word for transgression might be sin. Another way to talk about sin would be to think about something that doesn't please God. Anything we think, say, or do that is displeasing to God. And so what Daniel is receiving from God is essentially, this is, this is the word of God. I'm telling you, Daniel, hundreds of years in advance of it occurring, that there is going to come a day where my people are in rebellion against me, and as a result of that rebellion, that sin, I am going to use a wicked authority to judge them and discipline them. You see that? Now here's the hard reality, because, you know, as you're thinking and processing, what might go through your mind, probably what should go through your mind, is, now wait a minute, why would God punish His people who, by all really, at least earthly accounts, are definitely more righteous than this group of people. They're definitely more righteous than this kingdom, than this ruler, and yet you're using this wicked, evil king to judge and to discipline your people. That doesn't seem like a good idea. That doesn't seem fair. Does that seem fair to you? It doesn't seem fair to me. The thing that we realize as we look at this is that what God is declaring is he's not as interested in fairness as he is in the holiness of his people. Let me say that again. God is not interested in fairness as much as he is the holiness of his people. He wants his people to be like him, and he will go to great lengths to make them so. And so when his people are in rebellion, he takes this wicked king. By the way, the wicked king is going to get judged too. We're going to see that in a minute. 
But before he judges this wicked king, this evil ruler, this evil authority, before he puts him away and says, enough of that, he uses him to discipline his people for, he says here, their transgressions or their sins. And so the first response that God's people should always have in the midst of evil authority coming into power is to ask, where is there evil in me? And how might I participate with God in seeing that evil eliminated? The first job of God's people is to look inside themselves and to say, God, would you search my heart and see where there is something wrong with me? Would you please eliminate sin from my life? And to get aggressive about the elimination of that sin in our own lives, rather than just lobbing the accusation of evil at other people. You, you follow me? That's the first job. Now here's the error, two errors that are possible in this, okay? So let me just point to two sides of the spectrum. There's the error that says, every difficulty in my life is the result of sin in my life, and therefore every time there's something bad going on, I'm constantly looking for, what's my sin? What do I need to repent of? What's going on? And the assumption is that I'm being disciplined or judged by God for something. The other error is to assume that God would never, ever bring difficulty into our lives as an act of discipline for our sin to pull us out of that sin. And you can vacillate anywhere between those two errors. And I would tell you, if, if you're on either of those poles, you're in error. That's not where God wants you to be. It is possible that God would discipline us for our sin, as he's doing here, using a wicked and evil authority, that God would do that in order to produce righteousness in us. And so we can't ever just say, it's definitely not sin on my part. Here's what that looks like. Some people say, well, God is a God of love and he's a God of grace, so of course he would never he would never do something like that. And that's just not true. Okay, God clearly is so interested in our holiness that again and again he disciplines. In fact, Hebrews 12 tells us like a good father who loves his kids, God disciplines those whom he loves. And so when we're rebelling against him, we're walking away from him, God wants to bring us back into the holiness that he's purchased for us. The other side is this. Think back to, I don't know if you guys remember this, if you've read the Gospels, there's this moment in the book of John where Jesus is having a conversation with these Pharisees. And there's a guy and he's been born blind. And, and the Pharisees say to um, Jesus, they say, here's our paradigm, Jesus. Essentially, anytime something like this is going on in someone's life when they're blind, it's a result of sin. Somebody did something wrong and that's a punishment for that. And so Jesus says, well, I got a different paradigm. And they come to him and they say, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Now that's an interesting question because they're assuming that he could have sinned in utero. Right? He's been born blind. So who sinned? Was it this guy? Did he do something in the womb that made him get judged? And Jesus says, no, no, no. He says, is neither this man nor his parents that sinned? They said, he was born this way so that God's glory would be revealed. And then he proceeds to heal him. So in other words, what he's saying is, I created this this child to be blind so that when I came into the world, I could heal him and glorify myself through healing him. It had nothing to do with sin on his part. Now think about the remarkable nature of that because John tells us that all the miracles that he records in his gospel are recorded, is what he says at the end of the book, so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. That includes the miracle of healing the man born blind. So in other words, what he's saying is, Jesus knew all along that this was his intention. There are points where difficulty comes into our life simply as a way of God bringing that, so that, not because of sin on our part, but so that he might glorify himself, either through delivering us or, for, or, or through um, comforting us and walking us through that difficulty 
like a good father does. Now, in this text, we're not told, we're not told what the sin is. Now, he says it among other prophets, like when you get into other, other books of the Bible, it's described what the people of Israel were doing that they're being judged for. But we're not told in this text. But what we can do as we look at this text is we can take those markers of the nature of evil and we can ask if this is saying that we must eliminate evil from ourselves first before we would look outside of ourselves, then here's some questions that you might want to ask in terms of where evil is having its way with us. We saw that evil loves power. Perhaps a question we should ask ourselves is where have I loved power? Where have I clung to power for power's sake? Where have I... Um, and here's an indicator. If you, let's just take your workplace, for example. If you find that in your place of work, you sustain your authority simply by leaning on your position, right? Not your character. Then that's an indication that you are clinging to power for the sake of power. If you have talented people working underneath you, young men, young women who are good at what they do and you refuse to platform them so that they can grow in their authority and ability, then you are clinging to power for power's sake. So where do I love power? Number two question might be this, what have I produced with my actions? We said that evil can be known by the fruit it produces. It's a fitting question for us to ask ourselves, where have I produced what is not good with my actions? I mean, and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Um, if you have family, you can ask family, where is what is being produced from my life not honoring to God? A specific aspect of that. We said that, that evil loves to destroy and not cultivate because God delights to cultivate. A specific aspect of that actions question is this. Have I destroyed or have I cultivated with my actions? Now keep in mind, we don't just mean physical destruction. We mean emotional, intellectual, spiritual destruction where your actions uh, tend to bring a more destructive force into people's lives rather than giving them life and encouragement and hope and joy. We need to ask ourselves regularly as a church. And by the way, friends, this is a mark of the church often is that we tend to, we, we have a tendency to harm people rather than to bring hope and help to people. You know, that when we get into our self-righteous mode, that's exactly what we do. Because what we do is we essentially communicate this, this message to people. They somehow need to be good like we're good. Well, first of all, we're not good. And second of all, we crush them because they're thinking, that's, I got to look like you. I don't look anything like you, at least the facade that you've put on. So I have no idea, I mean, there's no way. And they walk away thinking, I could never, I could never be in this thing. And that is so um, enraging to God. Because he delights to have wounded and broken and hurting brought to him, not pushed away from him. So where have we loved power and where have we destroyed rather than cultivate with our actions? Another question we might ask ourselves is, do I love the church? We said that evil hates God and hates God's people. Now it is popular, friends, it's really popular right now to think of ourselves so individualistically that we say things like, and I guarantee you've probably heard somebody say this, I love Jesus, but I'm not so interested in the church. You guys heard that one before? Okay, that's not possible, by the way. Because Jesus loves the church. 
Jesus died to create the church. And if you love Jesus, you love what he loved. So don't tell me you love Jesus, but the church you can't stomach. Look, I thought about preaching a series called How to Love an Ugly Bride. I didn't think that might go over very well. Because we are, we're a mess. We're Jesus' bride and we are a mess and he loves us anyway. You laugh, so maybe I'll do that series. The point is this. I was at a conference, I'll tell you this story. I was at a conference. And it was a parachurch ministry, um, neat thing, just meant to minister to guys in the business world. And I, and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. But the one thing that kept happening that kind of bugged me was that these guys kept kind of getting up and saying, these guys are a lot, very successful in business. And so they were essentially saying, like, our situation's unique, and, and perhaps, like, the church doesn't really understand us or how to minister. Because that's fair. The church makes all kinds of mistakes in learning how to minister to folks. And I'd be the first to, to acknowledge that. But they kind of just bashed the church throughout this whole weekend. Just like, you know, we recognize the church is just this and the church is that. And it got said a lot. Well, John Piper was one of the speakers at that weekend. Um, he's, a, he's a pastor, if you're not familiar, the pastor, author, and pretty sharp guy. And, and uh, he, got, he got up the last day, and he's not one to mince words. And so he got up and he just said, now I've, I've listened to you guys a lot throughout this weekend talk about the church and, he's like, and, and how much you don't like the church. And I just want to tell you, you don't have to like the church. You have to love the church. It's not an option. The local church is God's plan to redeem the world, and there's not a plan B. Like, that's plan A, and there's not a plan B. And so he calls his people to live in community with one another, with all of our messiness, with all of our ugliness, with all of our warts and all the hiccups that we have, all the mistakes that we make again and again. You and I don't have a choice about loving the church. If we love Jesus, we will love what he loves, and he loves his church. Okay? No. Last question might be this. We said the evil deceives and is cunning. That's what the script, this is what chapter 8 told us. And we might want to ask ourselves, where have I deceived others? Where have I communicated half-truths or just outright, just bold-faced lies in order to get a leg up or because I wanted to avoid pain somehow or avoid emotional awkward, or avoid relational awkwardness, whatever it may be. I just want to point out, and this is helpful to, it helps me when I think about it this way, so maybe it'll help you. When you lie, when you tell a half-truth, uh, when you don't speak what is true, essentially what you're saying is, God, I don't trust you to work out the results of this circumstances, and so I'm going to try and figure out a way around whatever barrier I see in front of me. Lies are mistrusting God. You guys follow that? God is big enough and sovereign enough and powerful enough to cause you to speak the truth and to work and orchestrate in your circumstances however he chooses in whatever way he wants. Okay, so those are just some questions that I would encourage us to ask. Now the second thing that we see in this text, look with me at verse 25. The second thing I would say about God's people and what God expects of us in the midst of evil, if the first thing is that he expects us to examine ourselves, to seek to eliminate the evil in ourselves, then the second thing would, would be this. That we need to tell each other, make a regular practice of telling each other that evil has an end. Here's what verse 25 says. I told you last week, it's the only hopeful verse in this entire chapter. It says, by his cunning, speaking about this ruler again, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. That's a name for God. And he shall be broken but by no human hand. Okay, that's not even an encouraging verse. It's an, it's an encouraging half of a verse. 
That's all we get in this chapter. He shall be broken, but by no human hand. Now remember that we identified that this ruler is empowered by Satan, that there's a demonic force empowering his work. And in this text, what we then hear is, he will be broken, but by who? Not by a human hand. What we're meant to infer is by a heavenly hand then. By God himself, he will remove the authority. So while he may be used to discipline God's people for a season, ultimately this evil ruler will be removed from authority and power. And here's what I would derive from this. God is communicating this. You get this. God is communicating this hundreds of years in advance of it actually happening. So just follow this thinking for a second now. God is saying, I know my people are going to, this is hundreds of years in advance, I know my people are going to be in sin, and this is what I'm going to do to deliver them. And I'm going to let you know that so that Daniel, when you record this and put it out, Daniel's actually told in this chapter that he is supposed to seal up this vision. In other words, don't communicate this for a while. So he actually hangs on, can you imagine having to hang on to this in your, in your soul? I'm the only one that knows this. And then later, God releases him to communicate. Okay, write it down, and now it goes out for God's people to see. So that hundreds of years later, they would know, okay, hundreds of years ago, God communicated about this circumstance that we're in right now. And he said that this evil authority will be broken, but by no human hand. Would that comfort you if you were in the midst of this? That you know that evil has an end. And friends, here's what I want to tell you. We need the same comfort um, regardless of, of what, you know, authority, whether it's evil or good, we need to be reminded we encounter evil every day in our world. It's a reality of living in a fallen world. And because we do, it is necessary that we be a people who remind each other that evil will come to an end one day. That there will be a time where it will no longer be this way. Whether it's sickness and disease and illness or whether it's oppression by an evil authority, whatever it may be, relational brokenness, Whatever thing we encounter, there will come a day where that thing will no longer be the case because our God rules and reigns. In fact, that's been what he's been saying all throughout Daniel, right? I'm God, I'm establishing my kingdom, and nothing's going to stand in the way of it. So we need to be a people who remind each other. Now let me give a little bit of instruction in that. That means you have to be close enough to one another and have a relationship with one another that's close enough to know what's going on in each other's lives. And when there's brokenness and when there's hurt, and to come alongside, and let me just counsel this. This doesn't mean that you rush in and go, it's all going to be better in the end, so don't worry about the fact that you just got the horrible news that your spouse has a tumor in their brain. Don't worry about it. It's all going to be good in the end. We come and we comfort with that truth, with tears in our eyes, knowing that the pain of this moment is real and hard and needs to be lived in the community of the church where we care for and love each other and point each other to the reality that one day there will be no more stuff like this. Both are needed. Right now we have to live in the tension of what is now our reality and what will be our reality one day. We need both. We can't let go of it. So, you know what? Let's remind ourselves, okay? How about, what do you want? 1 Corinthians 15 or Revelation 20? Choose your own adventure today. I'm just kidding. I'm just flipping somewhere, so you're just going to get what I go. Listen to Revelation chapter 20. Best little, if you've got one of those Bibles that puts little titles before sections, best section ever, the defeat of Satan. 
Revelation 20, verse 7, just says this. You can just listen. It says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, those are names given to nations that will gather. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. Okay, so get the picture now. This is a, this is a host of people gathering to war against God. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Okay, so it doesn't look good so far. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Think about how long it would take to gather an army with as many people as the sand of the seas from the four corners of the earth. So they're gathering and they're gathering and they're gathering and here they come to go to war. And in the climactic moment, it's literally... This is not a battle. What happens is not a battle. This is not a fight. This is people gathering to war against God and God going, well, okay. And we're done. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they would be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now I know you're thinking, should we delight in torment and anguish? For the devil, yes. That is okay. You are allowed to delight that the devil will suffer for all eternity. He hates us and he hates God. And he is our enemy. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Let me just give you verses 50 through 58. Now this is talking, you're going to see these terms perishable and imperishable. He's talking about the fact that we live in these dead decaying bodies that are going to go in the grave one day. And he's going to raise them up and give us resurrection bodies that will no longer have disease or sickness or imperfection, that this is our future reality that will come to pass. I don't know if we're going to look 25 or 55, but it's going to be awesome. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Get this. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? The church should be a people who regularly reminds one another of the reality of our future eternity. We need to become a people who are so fixated on what our eternity will be like that we long to be there. You guys remember uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read those books? So if you've read them, they're kids' stories. They're great. Pick them up. They're a great allegory for the gospel. Uh, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is the third one in the series, there's this great moment where Edmund and Lucy, two of the uh, Pivensey kids, are not in Narnia anymore, this land where Aslan, their, their lord, lives. And they're back in the regular world, and they're looking at this painting in this, in this old castle, this old home, for years and years and years, and they're, they're looking at this thing, and it just looks like Narnia, and they're longing for Narnia, and they share stories about Narnia with one another, and they talk constantly, but do you remember when we fought those great battles for Aslan, our king, and 
oh, oh, to be back in Narnia. And they just, they were longing for it. And Edmund, who was their cousin, who um, is a bit of a, I'm not sure the right word for it. He's not a guy you're going to like right off the bat. And he just spends all his time making fun of how you dreamers, you think that's a reality. That's not a reality. You guys are making up stories and you're full of it. And this is just, you need to kind of get in touch with what is real, right? And in the story, not to sort of, you know, not to ruin it for you, but he gets sucked into Narnia along with them through this picture, right, in this pretend world. But the beauty of that is Edmund and Lucy, C.S. Lewis does such a great job of painting this picture of their longing for their eternal home, for Narnia, where they truly belonged. And once they'd been there, there was no other place that could satisfy the soul anymore. God's people need to be reminded that this is the end of the game, that this is how things end, because it creates in us a stirring and a longing for our true and heavenly home. And uh, friends, if you don't long for your eternal home, then you're not going to be much earthly good. You know what I mean when I say that? Unless you can see it as clear as day, unless you can see what it will be like, unless you can see that throne room and see yourself there among the throng, worshiping God and declaring His worth, unless you long for it more than you long to be married, more than you long to have kids, more than you long to live a long life, unless you long for this thing. And friends, let me just tell you, when you see it clearly, you will long for it. You don't have to fear that you might begin to really dig in here and understand the nature of God and the nature of eternity and think, what if I ultimately don't like it better than I like what's happening here? What if I'd rather stay here? Just put that, you know, can I put that fear to rest for you? God says in Isaiah, he says, come and taste that the Lord is good. Come and taste that the Lord is good. As you begin to taste the things of eternity, you will recognize that the things of earth pale in comparison. But the beauty of the things of eternity is that as you begin to hunger and thirst for them, they make you useful now in ways that you were not useful before. Last two things from this text that I wanted to point out. Number one, uh, sorry, yeah, number one of those two. is Verse 27 says this, last verse in the text. Look at it with me. It says, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Okay, so here's what I love. Daniel, throughout this book, has sort of been the example of a God follower par excellence, right? I mean, he ne- it's like lion's den, sure, no problem. Like, he never seems to waver. He never seems to have difficulty. He always seems to have his stuff together and make the right call. And I love that at the end of this, you know, Lord help me that I love this for him. He didn't love it. He is sick for days because of what he's seen. He's still confused. By the way, he says in verse 15 of this chapter that he's going to seek to understand the vision that God has given him. God then sends an angel, Gabriel, to reveal the, the interpretation of the vision to him. At the end of it in verse 27, he said, I had Gabriel telling me the interpretation of the vision. I'm still confused and don't understand it. Now, is that a little comforting for those of you when you go to read your Bible and you're like, I don't really understand what's going on here. Right? Daniel had, a ga- had Gabriel speaking directly to him and didn't understand. Okay? So, in this moment, we see, I mean, Daniel is laid up sick for days because of what happens. And here's what, I, here's what I take from that. Is that when we encounter evil and hardship, one of the things we need to know is we don't have to run as hard uphill as we run downhill. Now, let me tell you why I say that. It's kind of an illustration. Um, I, I used to train for marathons. Keyword, used to. And when I was doing it, I, was in, I lived in Illinois at the time. And Illinois is not a land of hills, right? And there was this one, like, little hill on my run. And my conviction was, 
I'm not going to break pace. When I hit that hill on my training runs, I'm going to run as fast uphill as I do when it's flat and when it's downhill. Because I'm, I'm me. I'm going to make this happen, right? And so I'm running up the hill, and I, and I could do pretty well. And then I moved to places where bigger hills existed. I was recently out in San Diego. Have you guys been to San Diego before? There are different, it's a different breed of hills in San Diego. And I was in Encinitas. I was at a conference uh, for pastors. And I, got, I was getting up early in the morning. I was going running. I was like, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go run. And the folks I was staying with said, well, there's this great kind of preserve area. And it's got some good hills if you want to run a hill. I said, sure. And I got up there and I looked at this thing and I thought, oh, my Lord. All right, here we go. And I was like, I'm going to beat this hill. And, you know, I'm thinking, I mean, again, my old standard was same pace I've been running the entire time. I quickly let go of that standard. And just thought, just run the whole way up the hill. Don't stop. I got halfway up the hill. My legs were on fire. I couldn't breathe. I had to stop to breathe. That's never happened to me before running. I was like, I can't, I won't emulate it for you because that would sound awkward through a microphone. But so I literally, I couldn't breathe. I stopped. I got to the top. I turned around. I took a hill. I took a hill. I took a picture and I sent it to, to Amanda. And I was like, this hill just kicked my rear end. Um, but the sad thing is the pictures never look as daunting as, you know what I mean? Like, you take the pictures of the mountain, I'm like, no, believe me, this hill was, was, was stout. It was serious. Next morning, I get up, and I'm like, I'm going to beat this hill today. So I get up, and I go back to run. What I didn't count on the fact was that the hill had done all its damage on day one to my legs. And it was like, it just laughed at me. The hill just laughed at me, like, you think you're making them. It was one of those hills where it was dirt, and they had put, like, little wood barriers because they, they didn't want the, it was so steep that they didn't want the dirt just to slide down. So they had these different barriers in it. So, you know. That makes me sound a little bit better, right? So I'm running, I'm running up this hill. And what dawns on me in those moments is there, you can't run as fast up this hill as you can when the ground is flat. You just can't. Like there's moments where that happens. And, you know, as much as we started this sermon by saying God wants to convict us of the evil in us, can I offer you a word of comfort that as you encounter difficulties in this life, God doesn't expect you to run as fast when, you're, when it's an uphill battle as when you've got the wind at your back and you've got downhill. It's okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that our God is a God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in the same affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. Now that verse says the word comfort a whole lot. But here's what it means. It means that one, our God delights to be a God of comfort. And then when he comforts us in whatever affliction we face, he's one of the reasons he's doing so is that we might turn around and comfort someone else who finds himself in the same difficulty, in the same circumstance. Isn't that good? That God takes and comforts you. So he, he wants to come in in that moment when it's uphill and he wants to say, look, just keep, look, don't stop. Keep walking. I don't expect you to run at the same pace you were running before. Just keep going. I'm with you. I'll walk with you. That's a great comfort to me. Daniel laid up sick, knowing that it's hard. The last thing is this. Don't stop seeking the good of the city for the glory of Christ. Did you notice what Daniel did after he was sick for those days? It says he got up and went about the business of the king. He got up and went about the business of the king. Now you think, so what? I want you to think about what God just revealed to Daniel. Daniel, who is in exile, 
trying to discern when the exile might end and trying to be faithful so that he can shape the culture that he's in and shape God's people in a way that is helpful to them has just been told that hundreds of years when he's off the scene and dead, God's people are still going to be sinning against God. There's going to be even more evil and wickedness in the culture than there is in the one that he's currently residing in. In other words, you might be tempted to think if you're Daniel, everything I have done makes no difference whatsoever. You think you might have felt that way? I think I might have. I mean, th- th- those are the two key questions I'd be asking. Is how am I shaping my culture and how am I shaping God's people and helping God's people become more like God? And what he's revealed to him is essentially nothing changes. It only gets worse. So the question that we might ask ourselves is, well, how do you continue to get up and go about the work that you've been given to do when it doesn't seem like it produces anything of value, when it seems like it just, nothing, nothing happened? What do you do? How do you stay with it? And the simple answer is this, and I'm just going to, I'm going to try and state it succinctly here. Simple answer is this, is that you have to love God most. You have to love God most because when he calls you to something, you do it for his pleasure, not because of the work, not because of the fruit it produces. Now he may produce fruit from it and we glorify him for that and honor him for it and are thankful for it. But there may be times where he calls us to keep our hand to the plow and we don't see the fruit produced, whether it's in our culture being shaped and changed or whether it's in God's people being shaped and changed. And we may not see it, but you keep your hand to the plow, not because of the fruits it's produced, but because you love God. And as you are faithful to his calling in your life, you sense his pleasure. That's why we have to cultivate a high view of God, friends. It's, I mean, we talk about this all the time. You have to cultivate a high view of who God is so that his delight and his pleasure and his love and his affection would be paramount to you. If you have a low view of God, it, won't, it can't sustain you. If you have a high view of God, then the love of God can sustain you in doing work that doesn't produce fruit ultimately. So these are the four things that we're talking about in terms of what God expects from his people in the midst of being under evil authority. That they would confess their sin and turn... By the way, friends, 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You do not have to fear that you would go to God and say, God, here's my sin, and that he would say, I'm sorry, I have no forgiveness left to give. That's too many times. One time too many. I'm sorry, I don't have anything left to give. That is not our God. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. In other words, change us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are to seek and ask what is evil in ourselves first. We are to seek to comfort one another with the knowledge that sin and evil will come to an end one day. We can be encouraged that we don't have to run as fast uphill as we do downhill. That We serve a God of comfort who is with us in that moment. And lastly, we know what it is to go back to the work that he's called us to do as exiles, to seek the welfare of the city in which we live, even when it doesn't produce the fruit that we might hope that it does, because we love in and delight in him not in the work that's produced through us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to sing a song now. I think the song we're going to sing is the power of your name. Your name is a strong and mighty power and nothing has the power to save but your name. As we sing that, that's that's our response to hearing your word today. So I pray that you'd receive it from us, and I pray that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged and comfort them as the God of all comfort. I pray that you would convict us 
those of us who are in need of conviction, and that we'd receive that from your hand, knowing that it's an act of mercy that you would show us where we have come up short. That we'd be willing to do business with you in that way. That we wouldn't ignore it or try and put it aside any longer, but that we would take the places where you convict us and we would respond. For our good, and so would you guide us in that way. Holy Spirit, do your work in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.